It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's a place here at the table. Your coats go by the door. You can kick your shoes off in that pile on the floor. I hope you wore elastic because your waistband's going to get tight. Take time. Hi guys, it's Sophie and Ari, and you're listening to Having a Night, the podcast dedicated to reviving the lost art of the dinner party. We are at season three, episode two. How did we get here? Oh my god! <laughs> woo woo woo! So, uh, what did you eat this week? Okay, I want to give a big shout out to a very special mushroom, <laughs> the wood ear mushroom. God, I love a woodier mushroom. I went to a restaurant in my neighborhood yesterday, ABC Kitchen. It's so excellent. It's just so good. And I had a salmon that came with sort of like a melange of mushrooms. And one mm. of them was wood ear. And I feel like I very rarely have wood ear mushrooms in cuisines that are not Chinese food. Mm-hmm. So if our listeners don't know, they're very fungal. They're like very chewy they're almost gelatinous, but they are so good. I think that some people think that they'll be turned off by the texture, but don't be turned off by the texture. They're so good. So it was woodier mushrooms, other kinds of mushrooms, and then lentils and salmon, which is like, it was just a combination that I never would have thought of. And it was so good. Thank you, woodiers, for being there for me day in and day <laughs> out. You've been there for me for years, and I know you're never going to disappoint me. So, oh, but you eat this for the wind. Fungus among us. I love mushroom. I dyed my hair mushroom color. That's how much I love mushrooms. Last night, I had such a lovely dinner that I made at home. Very kind of rustic, light, acid forward, which is something I don't do very much. I made like a poached shrimp salad with pars- like very heavy on the herbs, parsley, celery, fennel, celery leaves, um, a lot of lemon, some Casavetrano olives. I threw a bit of feta in there, black pepper, and some really good champagne vinegar, and just lots and lots of lemons and like olive brine. And then a big hunk of really great uh, crusty whole grain sourdough from a local bakery that I love with some really good butter. It was just really nice, like this acidic salad with shrimp and then just like lots of Lots of bread and butter. It felt very French. That sounds was fucking incredible. Did you make that up? I, yeah. I, I, uh, I just, yeah. Uh, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Inspired by some recipes I've been reading and just kind of threw a bunch of things that I had in my fridge together. But oh, what yeah, a really delight. to using herbs as greens. Of course, I fortified yeah. with some baby arugula that I had left over like at the bottom of the bag. But um, yeah, mostly just parsley and celery leaves for like the salad-y part. And yeah, yeah um, 
highly recommend. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Also using olive brine. There's another thing that's been for me there for me for years. <laughs> olive brine. It's certainly been in your refrigerator for years. <laughs> it's true. God, I love olive brine. It's so good. I think we're actually a lot of professional chefs use that as sort of like their secret ingredient. Really? Yeah, I think it's like they people a lot of people use it in places that you wouldn't expect. Oh, I love that. I mean, it's such a great way to add both salt and acid yeah. and to like fortify a dressing without just, and giving it more bulk, like without just adding salt. Ooh, it's delicious. You Maybe should. tonight I'll make like an, an olive brine dressing, which, which consists of nothing but olive brine. <laughs> yes. Oh, here's another thing I um, did because I'm a freak. Um, I was just experimenting with the best way to poach shrimp, whether shell on or shell off. So I was deveining with the shell off and with the shell on. It's definitely harder to devein a shrimp with the shell on. I would recommend um, using kitchen shears, cutting open the back, and then using a toothpick to kind of swirl out um, the the vein, the poop track. And I just think that when you poach them with the shell on, even though it adds an extra step of having to de-shell after they're cooked... They really just stay so much more moist and they're more evenly cooked. I think they get super rubbery when you when you poach them just completely bare, naked. Yeah. Bare uh, bare, bare naked, naked shrimp. Um so I always rely on Cook's Illustrator for these kinds of tips because you know they're like the king of doing, you know, like trying a <laughs> recipe in all these different ways, right? Of being like, okay, we tried them. Frozen, test we kitchen. tried them. America's fresh, Test Kitchen. America's Test Kitchen, Cooks Illustrated. Guys, if you don't subscribe, I do highly recommend it. It is a very worthwhile expense. Um, or you can you just listen cook. to the podcast and we'll tell you everything that we know from being uh, lifetime subscribers. And they actually, I think just this last month, did a thing about like how best to cook shrimp because it, oh, they, really? it is so tricky. Because when shrimp are good, they're incredible. When shrimp are bad, there's like they're wild pointless. Okay, so hold on. Before we even get started fully on this episode, did you guys know that we have a newsletter? It's very exciting. But what's more exciting is that now you can text us to subscribe to our newsletter. I like can't even believe how electronically savvy we are. But I know. Are we the first newsletter that has uh, that you can subscribe via text? I mean, definitely <laughs> I not. But be. like, I've never heard of that. So, so you can text having a night. No spaces. No spaces. Text that to 22828 and you'll be automatically subscribed to our newsletter. What? That's crazy. Well, you have to put in your email after, but whatever, you know, you get it. Yeah. And we don't send it very often because we're busy and so are you. And we have no interest in annoying you. It doesn't cost anything to listen to the podcast. We're not like, here, buy this product, do this thing. Love us. We have no interest in being desperate. So we're not sending this newsletter daily. It's more like a once a month, if that. <laughs> yeah, we, it's we like might. once every three months. We'd <laughs> like to get better at it, but whatever. But, but you know, we I know Ari just said that we're not like, hey, buy stuff. But if you wanted to buy stuff. Yeah, like, maybe. I have to like have a baseball cap, let's say, with the Having a Night logo. You could <gasps> have one. Oh my God. You can totally have one because guess what? We made them. And coasters. Coasters, very, very on brand for us. Baseball caps, we love shielding our faces from the sun. You can get your sick hat and coasters at our Shopify site. 
but it's much easier to actually do it over Instagram. You can just click um, on the view shop option in our profile and many of our posts have um, the items for sale linked. So they're also on our website. Basically, Mm -hmm. if, if you want them, you can find them. Hell yes. And they're super, super cute. They're really cute. Okay. Without further ado, let us embark on our episode. (laughs) We have the tastemaker, master of brands, visionary aesthete, Douglas Little on today. You may know him as the man behind Heretic Perfumes, aka the company that created the vagina candle made famous by Goop. This guy is BFF with Gwyneth. He's also just really, really cool, awesome. This is someone who was like born with a sense of taste and style. And he has an aesthetic that is unmatched and happily coincides with Halloween. Yes, very, very much. Like I think of him as the king of spooky and sexy. He does yes. both of those things so well, and then he combines them so well, which it's funny because I think Ari and I are always like silly and spooky, and he's like, yeah. no, no, what are we bringing the sex? And, I, and he's right. He's right. He does it very, very well. I have known Douglas for quite some time because he has often done the decoration for Halloween, which is the annual fundraiser that we throw for New York Restoration Project, which if you don't know, is a charity that my mom started in the 90s. That's all about cleaning and greening New York and making sure that areas that usually don't have green spaces have places where people can be outdoors. And our fundraiser is on the 30th. So Halloween this year, of course, is virtual and he has Mm -hmm. been helping us out with it. So if you are interested, you can go to nyrp.org. Let me just double check that that's, yeah, (laughs) nyrp.org. And you can get $10 tickets to this wackadoodle-do show. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be on YouTube. Anyway, so that's mostly how I know Douglas. And then, yeah, once he started Heretic, I mean, this has like really taken over his life. So he's a nose. Now he's getting into making chocolate. I mean, it's a whole thing. He's very, very special and like kind of ageless in this weird way. I feel like when I see him, I'm like, have you always been 25? Like, he's so, I don't know. know. I think. What do you think? He might be a vampire. He might be a vampire. Oh, Oh my God, he might be a vampire. Yeah, I mean, he will reveal something about himself in this interview that really holds up as evidence for this idea that he's a vampire. So theory. listen in and learn a thing or two about how to make an incredible tablescape. Yeah. Oh, among other things, like how to scent your home. I mean, so much fun stuff. We have a recipe for his salad dressing. He, since he is a nose and a a perfumer. He works with essential oils all the time. So he has this incredible salad dressing recipe. So we will put that up on our Instagram so you can check that out. It's amazing dressing. It just really elevates everything. So without further ado, listen in. We were so excited to talk to him. This interview kind of starts just smack dab in the middle of things, but we know you guys are really going to enjoy it. So here it goes. Well, I feel like we've all been forced to get so much more creative, like thinking about Halloween this year. I mean, every other year we thought we were being as creative as humanly possible, right? It's like, we're taking these themes, we're bringing them to the next level. We're making them as atmospheric and palpable as possible. And now it's like, oh my God, there's a whole other level of creativity that we are now having to access that it's just wild. Yes, absolutely. Uh, 
it's just so funny how like things have pushed me to places that they're kind of like breaking through aspects. You know, I've always loved Halloween. It's been my love since I was like such a love. And my parents were such big components of really celebrating this holiday in such a big way since I was like teeny, teeny, tiny. I've always been, I think as an adult, there's a guilt factor that plays into it where I'm like, I'm an adult. I really shouldn't be enjoying this as much as I'm enjoying it. And I don't have children, which makes it even more weird. So therefore, I've like immersed myself in doing these crazy events and all these different things. And I've had so many people say, wow, I just, I love the way that you're interpreting it. So finally, I put my, you know, this year I percolated the idea and then I'm going to put together, so I'm going to launch a little satellite company. Um, we trademarked it and got the LLC formed and all of it this year. And this year has been challenging anyway, so I didn't really want to launch anything. But next year I'll be launching this, basically this little Halloween company called Something Wicked This Way Comes. Oh um, my God. Wait, can we just, I just want to like rewind to what you just said, which is that you've always felt so close to Halloween because you're asking. Oh, yeah is so specific and I think of it as being very Halloween-y because obviously we've spent so much time with you around the holiday of Halloween. I feel like you take something that can be, can look scary and cheesy and instead you make it like very sexy and very mysterious. Oh, thank you. Has that always been your aesthetic or did you hone it over time? Like did your parents have a similar aesthetic? I'm just so curious about how you really kind of like dialed in on that, on what you do so well. So my mom and my dad both were photographers. So growing up, I mean, this is such like a Beetlejuice statement to say, I literally grew up in a dark room. Um, and I did like quite literally, my earliest memories were of being on my parents' back in like one of those papoose sacks um, while they were developing photographs in the dark room. And so my world was always very much a visual world. My aesthetic, I think it definitely has always been, I've always had a very innate curiosity with villains and all things that really go bump in the night. And from, you know, my earliest childhood memories, I remember, you know, just wanting my parents to kind of go back in and tell me more and to reread aspects of stories that typically were the scarier aspects of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, When I turned 16, I didn't want a car. I wanted a coffin. And, oh, um, my my, and my parents were like, you've got a choice. And so for my 16th birthday, I got a coffin and oh. I slept in that coffin until oh, I was 18. Did. You did? Oh, yeah. my God. Did you identify, were you kind of goth? Were you wearing a... Hardcore. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I was at 12. I was working at the Renaissance Fair, which is so, I can't even believe I'm admitting that to you guys, but um, there you go. But yeah, at 12, I started, I was fascinated with history. And so I started working as a costume assistant at the Renaissance Fair and then like realized what a total fucking nerd I was. And then kind of quickly in that scene discovered punk rock music. And I was like, oh, I love punk music. And about a year after being punk, I then met some goth friends and I was like, oh, these are my people and truly never looked back. You know, I think as an outsider and being obsessed with outsider culture, I always wanted to try to figure out ways of making it where it was more palatable to people. I knew that what I was interested in was something that was really avant-garde. I knew that there was there was it was interpreted in ways that were very derogatory. And mm-hmm. so I my whole goal, I think, has always been about if I really drill into the alchemy of what it is that I love and it's the idea of transformation of idea. And so for me, you know, like as a 
kid, I was completely obsessed with poisonous plants. And um, there was, I couldn't understand why I was obsessed with them. And through some work of some Jungian philosophy and some various ideas, I started to understand that sometimes the most beautiful things are also the most dangerous. Trying to find the beauty in that darkness, then I quickly realized like this is my path. And my path is about kind of looking in areas that most people will shy away from because they're afraid of them then bringing them into into the light in a way that's unexpected, that's new, that's transformed, and allowing people a chance to kind of step outside of themselves for a second and explore and be creative and and then dip back into their world when they want to. And, you know, that there's something about taking these scary ideas and polishing them a little. It's such an intellectually rigorous approach to aesthetics which I admire so much because it's really, it's not just saying we want this thing to look beautiful. We want it to look spooky. We want it to look sexy. There's so much history and love and passion behind it. It's funny because it's so steeped in ideas, but it's not the idea of something, right? It's not like sort of the frame. It's, it's just so full bodied. Just the most important thing right now. And I was just talking to some perfume students and they were really excited about starting a perfume line. And they were like, what advice would you give us? And I said, you know, my biggest advice is don't do anything if you're following a trend, because if you're following a trend and it's not something that's who you are, it will be a disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, And it may have some immediate success, but there's no longevity to it. And I think that that with all of the various projects that I'm doing, I think the one thing I'm very guilty of is spreading myself too thin, but at the same time, with all of the ideas that I'm going forwards with, there's very much a lot of roots to them. And so even if I was not doing what I'm doing for monetary reasons, I would still be doing it. And I'd still be reading the books. I'd still be interested in it. Right. So as someone who I think brings an immense amount of atmosphere to everything you do, what are some of the ways that people who maybe do not have as honed of an eye as you do, like say Ari and I, like what are some of the ways you think people can really bring atmosphere into a dinner that they're throwing, a party that they're throwing, like something that they are trying to host themselves? It's really a great question. I always call it the party alchemy. And party alchemy to me is a formula of, I always sit down and when I'm working on an event, ask the questions, how is this concept or how is this event going to touch all five senses? And then of course, there's the sixth sense, which is very important. You know, whether you're just doing a simple dinner party, it could just be a romantic dinner for two, or it could be, you know, a a dinner party for 30 um, or a wedding or a reception or whatever the case is. It's really, I think, important to sit down and to kind of pick apart what is your intention for the event itself? What do you want to try to achieve? And um, that's sometimes the hardest thing for a host to figure out. Ask yourself the question, why are you doing the event? What is your purpose? Is it to make yourself look amazing? Because just be honest. And like, if you want to like make yourself look like the tits, you should do it. Do you know what I mean? But like, don't sugarcoat it in something else. That's the part here is about really figuring out and getting to the DNA of why you're doing the event. But I ask the questions, what is the event going to sound like, obviously, which is just a basic. Uh, what is it going to taste like? What is it going to feel like? You know, what is it going to smell like, of course, which is very, very important. And what is it going to look like? And then um, the sixth sense is that I always throw into the mix is when people leave, what will they remember about the event? Or what would you like them to remember about the event? Oh, I thought um, if they, you ask if they saw dead people. Well, there's that too, which would be nice. (laughs) 
but not all parties. <laughs> um, I think Bruce Willis really, can't be at every party, right? That's <laughs> true. Talk about spread too thin. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that, you know, for me is really the most important aspects. And again, with previous events that we've done for Halloween and working with your mom, um, it's always something that we've really talked about. And I've asked the questions, you know, really, what do we want this thing to sound like? You know, when we did, um, you know, the Garden of Earthly Delights, uh, and we were working with inspirations from the Bosch paintings, um, it was really fun to kind of explore, like, what does a Bosch painting sound like? And, you know, what, how, how are we going to tell that soundscape, um, you know, to the audience? And what does, how is the lighting going to be informed by that? And, I think for your listeners, obviously, this is a highly theatrical concept, which if you're doing a dinner party, you know, how do you play that into a dinner party? So, but that could be something as simple as saying, like, I'm going to do a kind of a rustic, you know, farm to table concept for dinner, and then picking that apart. You know, what is the feeling of the food um, that you want to convey? Is it cozy? Is it comfortable? Is there something romantic about it? Is there something vintage you know, and really kind of digging into all those aspects and then saying, how is that going to be informed by sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, you know, all of those things. Like, what is your table linens like? Are they washed? Are they, you know, are they ironed? You know, is it more formal? These little subtle cues, I think, are so important. And especially for a younger generation, I I don't know about everyone's parents, but like my parents, I think were part of the generation started to rebel against their parents with having 12, uh, you know, pieces of cutlery and all of the, the multiple pieces. And I think now our generation is like, most people are lucky if they've got like four salad bowls that match. Um, and that they're like, their reality of flatware is really about just very utilitarian. Whereas if you're doing an event and you're having people over, I think that being knowledgeable about some of these subtle social cues that would come from the past really give you an, a great advantage when you're trying to, to do something that's more elevated and, and a little bit more nuanced. With doing Halloween events, I always talk about this concept about conjuring Emily Post. She's probably one of the most important people that you can sit down and do a little Ouija session to contact her and see what she has to say. And just simply by reading through a book or a blog on like traditional Emily Post ideas, um, you can blow your guest's mind, um, you know, with just these little tiny social cues that, you know, we as in our crazy cyber world totally disregard, you know. Can give us an example or two? Well, again, I mean, something as simple as like the folding of a napkin or the placement of a napkin or the way that the flatware is placed on a table. You know, again, this is, seems pretty basic, but a lot of people don't do name cards and they don't they don't actually do a table set where you actually figure out like, you know, at one point it was really considered a high art to figure out who to put next to people at a table and you do it for very specific reasons. I mean, I um, think placement is a high art form mm-hmm. and not one to be trifled with. God, bad placement, it can ruin your evening and the evening of your guests. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of people get really upset by it. But again, I love it. I love I love the idea of playing that kind of social hopscotch with an evening and kind of watching, you know, what unfolds. You know, that's the kind of the beauty of doing an interesting night. So those, I mean, I would say that the party alchemy is really an an, an essential element for me when I'm developing an idea and wanting to, you know, get across some some mood or feeling or takeaway. I want to kind of dovetail into the scent thing because the only thing I think about when I'm throwing a dinner party 
is how my apartment smells based on the food, obviously. Mm-hmm. But when I'm throwing a bigger party, scent is nowhere near my mind. So heretic, I mean, if you want to introduce heretic just a little bit to any of our listeners who sure. don't know what it is, I'd love that. And then I'll ask you some questions. Well, fragrance is very near and dear to me. It's again, much like Halloween. I think that the two things I'm probably the most obsessed with is fragrance and, you know, fall and Halloween. Um, fragrance for me is very important because it is an invisible storyteller and um, it gives you the ability, you know, it's very interpreted by everyone in different ways. And so it gives you a way of kind of telling stories in an invisible concept it's also very transformative. You also have to be very careful with it too, because it can be very overwhelming to a lot of people. So you have to, you know, kind of understand the nuances if you're going to work with it in event design. I started Heretic um, Perfume in 2015. And the idea behind the brand was to create a collection of personal and home fragrances that were made completely from 100% natural materials. Um, My background in fragrance and perfumery, um, I went to school um, to be actually an art director and then went to Paris, met a wonderful perfumer, and then went out to Grasse and kind of did a deep dive into the world of perfumery. I came back to the States and then studied underneath a natural perfumer in Berkeley, who I'm still in touch with. Mm -hmm. And... um, I didn't know whether it was ever going to be any more than a hobby. You know, I launched my first company in 2003, which was just really candles. And then I took a hiatus for a while and was kind of watching what the market was doing. And I started to see that what we were, as a society, Whole Foods was silently training us. And we actually didn't even realize what was going on, but we were all of a sudden spending, you know, anywhere from you know, one to $10 more for basic items in our lives because we felt like they were more vetted. They were more, um, they had better ingredients. They were better made. Um, they didn't contain certain things and we were paying for that knowledge or at least that reassurance that whole foods was kind of like this filter and anything in the store was going to be better for me. And I started to ask the question to myself, I wonder if this will trickle down to beauty. And I felt like the first thing that would happen was it would be the uncovering of skincare. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. About 10 years ago, we started to see when, you know, the consumers really started to ask the question, like, what is in this skin cream that I'm using. Yeah, what is um, ethicone and all of this crap? Exactly. Yeah. You know, and these questions would start to arise. And so I knew that the person that was spending that extra money on the better food or a better diet, and they were concerned about what they were putting in their body, that they would eventually be concerned about what they were putting on their body. And so I decided to do Heretic knowing that it was going to be a really uphill battle um, because the market right now, 99.9% of all commercially available fragrances, even niche fragrances found at Bergdorf or you know anywhere, are all synthetic. The reason actually that my company became named Heretic was because I was told by a very astute perfume house that what I was doing was insane mm. and that there was no market for it mm. and that the work of natural perfumery was nothing more than the work of housewives and heretics. Oh my and, God, wow. Um, Little did you know, then Gwyneth would come and like, that guy has no idea what he was talking about. That's crazy. Again, the first couple of years were really rough. Um, you know, I was launched at Barney's. They were putting me next to Byredo and Malabo. And, you know, people would come up and they were like, okay, what's this? And I would have to explain it to them. And then they would smell it. And they were like, oh, this doesn't smell like my favorite fragrance. And I was explaining right. to them, well, you know, these are 100% natural. And this is why. And this is what I'm doing. And 
it took Gwyneth coming in. And, you know, when Gwyneth found me, she was like, I really want to do fragrance for Goop. And I love what you're up to. And she really loved my chutzpah. And she said, uh, you know, I really think that we could do something together. And mm-hmm. the thing I loved about working with Gwyneth is that she's as much of a nerd as I am. And, you know, we spent, I think, almost two, three hours sitting on my floor in my Upper West Side apartment, geeking out over fragrance. And we just spoke the same language. So we launched Editions one through four, which became very successful. And then, of course, we've kind of continued on doing various collaborations, including our latest scintillating, this smells like my vagina candle. So I can't get over the fact that people don't think that's a joke. <laughs> like nobody's vagina smells like that. It's like, no shit, guys. It's supposed to be ironic. It's funny. Get over yourself. It's funny. I We still to this day, like I just had, uh, we just had someone make a comment the other day that they were like, you know, um, vaginas don't typically smell good. Why would anyone make this product? And I was like, I, like, I can't address yeah, that. Is that so like, yeah. Oh my God. When we're talking about dinner parties more specifically, Sophie and I have always kind of said, and we've talked to, you know, other hostesses, burning scented candles or incense is always kind of a no-no. So I guess that's actually the question is like, would you ever burn a scented candle or incense or are there certain fragrances that actually are so savory that they wouldn't kind of blow out your palate? Well, again, I love working with fragrance and events, but if I'm doing a dinner party, I would never do a scented candle or incense yeah. because I really think that the most important thing is getting people you know, to really connect with the food. Now, what I have done, because I work with 100% natural materials, a lot of the materials are food safe. And so I will incorporate these essential oils, flower materials into the food, mm-hmm. um, which makes for a really, really interesting evening. So like a lot of you know things that we take for granted, like celery, pepper, cilantro, pink pepper, like jasmine, rose, all of these are edible materials. And so you can turn them into salad dressings. You can turn them into... Uh, butters, you can turn them into chocolates. Like there's so many different ways of incorporating these materials into dinner and making it so interesting and new and completely dynamic for a very basic, simple dinner. I mean, literally something as simple as doing like a salad and pasta, you can take and blow your your guest's mind by adding, you know, like real oregano essential oil into mm-hmm. a salad dressing and it can it's so transformative and you need literally like half of a drop to make you know eight ounces of like the most spectacular salad dressing ever that's a great tip yeah it's a really yeah. good tip is there such a thing as food safe essential oils versus regular so you just have to make sure to get food safe you know, now essential oils have become, you know, so much more popular. There's some great resources that are commercially available. So like doTERRA is a great one. A lot of people are very familiar with the brand. Um, Again, most of these websites that are selling these essential oils, they will typically have an area that says food safe. I, if you don't want to spend the money on the doTERRA prices, I work with a company called Liberty Natural um, and they're out of Portland, Oregon amazing resource um, and very affordable. And they all of their stuff is clearly marked either food safe or not food safe. Mm-hmm. So if you've got listeners that are interested in exploring this world, it's a great one. 
You've got some folks who are interested in exploring this world. That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and also if for your listeners or like for a blog or anything, if you guys want to do, I could throw out a couple recipes for salad dressings or something like that. That that would be fantastic. We can release it with the episode. That would be amazing. Awesome. Do you you cook a lot? I do. I love cooking. I would say that I love my favorite is really, I love working on the end of a meal. So I'm very, I'm super, I'm really into salads, but I'm really into desserts. And um, lately I've had a real obsession with kind of trying to master um, chocolate making, which is no easy feat. Oh my God. So like you're learning about tempering, like all of the whole thing. Oh my God. Are you also trying to mix? Sorry. I'm just so excited. So for you. Chocolate fiends. I love chocolate so much. Are you also trying to mix fragrance in with that? So like using essential oils and stuff? Oh, I love it. I mean. Yeah. I've I've been doing some really crazy, you know, cacao is an essential oil um, that can be used in fragrance making. And so like a vanilla absolute, cacao, um, coconut absolute, you know, our tonka bean, like all of these are food safe materials. And um, you can take and basically like create this liquid version of a chocolate bar. And so what I've been doing is kind of working in like two aspects of working in like an edit, like a truly edible form. So taking and constructing perfumes in chocolate and then, then deconstructing that and putting it into an actual sprayable perfume um, and trying to, and trying to mirror the two worlds. Uh-huh. And, you know, again, perfume making is very much like cooking. It's very much about understanding the kind of the fats and the acids and the salts, you know, the umamis and how they all play together. A great example is salmon. Like you get a great piece of salmon. It's really fatty. And what we always have to do with salmon is we need to cut it with acid. Mm -hmm. And so that's, again, like a great example would be jasmine absolute. Um, It's like a real fatty flower. It's like even when I get the material, a lot of times you get this kind of waxy residue in it. And it's because it's such a fatty flower. And it's so um, thick and dense. And, um, you know, it can be really cloying on its own. But you put like pure lemon essential oil in it and it just cuts it just like you would cut making a salad dressing and so the the chemistry of it is very similar like if you're an avid cook you would get you would absolutely completely love perfume making and again i've been kind of watching these interesting dichotomies and the language that flows between chocolate making and perfumery is also quite similar in perfumery, you can make liquid perfumes and you can make solid perfumes, obviously incense and all these other things. Solid perfumes are interesting because the materials you work with are, they're in wax. So you're working with this like heavier base and there's, there's a mirroring of it that I, it's very similar with, with chocolate making. I was just actually working with um, rose essential oil and a lang-a-lang um, and white pepper in the chocolate. And I was trying to get them to come through and I had to push so much harder than I thought I was going to, because they were trying to break through all of the the cocoa fats and all of that, which is, you know, quite fascinating. Oh my God. I mean, what a world. It's so true. Like they really do have sort of a synchronicity with one another. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And again, like, like winemaking and wine tasting, you know, obviously scotch, like any of these kinds of things, all of the language is so they kind of mirror each other in so many ways when you're talking about top notes, heart notes, bass notes, and how they all work together. I'm just curious, just for like my own personal knowledge, what are some of your favorite scents? Like, like when you're talking about Elaine, Elaine, Jasmine, like if you could only have one specific scent, like one essential oil for the rest of your life, what would it be? 
one essential oil for the rest of my life. Such a tough one. Um, Okay, maybe two. It it changes, but my go-tos are definitely rose. But rose, I don't think anyone actually really knows rose because real rose essential oil is so expensive that most people, like, they just don't even... They've never experienced it. Um, you know, I this is a I'll hold up a bottle for you. So this is a six ounce bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, and this bottle, so this is one of my roses, which comes from Turkey. Um, this bottle's around nine thousand dollars. Oh my god. So um wow. again, it takes, how many ounces do you think that bottle? So six ounces. Oh, that so was six ounces. I think I just blacked out because yeah, I didn't exactly. want to. <laughs> Yeah. And what people know of Rose is typically the synthetic counterpart, which, you know, people will be like, oh my God, you know, Rose is so old lady or so this or it's so that. Um, But real Rose is like, I mean, it's mind bending and it's metaphysical and it's, it's overwhelming. And depending on where it's grown, the, you know, the farmers that grow it, the weather, all of these things play such important aspects in its olfactive qualities, how it's distilled. Um, and there's these, like this particular family that does this is this family that's been doing this for 80 years. You know, it's been passed down through generations, the distillation process, how they handle it, when the roses are picked, the day that the roses are picked. I, I geeked out on it so hard that we're getting ready to release a product, which is going to be a body oil with this, with this product. And the family was able to give me the exact date, time and location of where it was picked. Um, And so I worked with my astrologer and we cast a natal chart for the rose so that you can understand the kind of like I, for me, these plants are so sacred. And so I always think of these plants in very human context. And so I wanted to give this rose a full context of it's this particular rose is a Gemini and its ascendant is um, in Virgo. And so I wanted people to understand when you're wearing this kind of all the other levels that are going on and whether you think it's all woo woo or not, it's, it's interesting to be able to just have that information about that material, but I digress. So. Well, but what I was going to say is it's also treating it like people treat grapes, right? It's like growing biologically. It's really thinking about terroir and it is really treating one ingredient with so much reverence. I remember having a conversation with a friend once about wine and he was like, I don't understand why people get so into wine. It's such a waste of time. It's like, but it's, first of all, it's not a waste of time. You can't have any. Yeah, none for you. But like, it's really just investing in in this ingredient in such a beautiful way. I think that's really, also, I will definitely buy that body oil. That sounds incredible. (laughs) Yeah. My other obsession is, um, Hinoki wood. Um, and Hinoki wood is my other, like, uh, you know, those are the two that I go definitely, I vacillate between, um, in the, in a, a really big way and for different reasons. How would you describe that to people who can't smell it? Hinoki wood? Yes, over over the airwaves. (laughs) So Hinoki is, um, it's within the cypress family. Um, It's a Japanese cypress. um, And the oil from it is really interesting because it's very woody, but it has a very distinctive lemon quality to it. So it's both grounding and also it's uplifting at the same time and i think a lot of people when they think of wood fragrances they think of things that are very heavy and mm-hmm. this tanoki like exists in this plane that's that's very much in the ephemeral it definitely lifts the spirits it makes you feel really alert and happy but grounded 
and secure. So you get like all the wood aspects, but without it feeling too heavy. So, and a lot of times, like one of my favorite combinations is Hinoki and rose oil, because you get um, that wonderful duality of kind of the masculine and the feminine and the way that they come together into something, you know, that is completely new. Amazing. My God. What can we do literally? I mean, we talked about the six senses, but what, what about the sense, the seventh sense we could say of like budget? Oh, yes. You know, because I would, important. and also space, because when, you know, we live in New York city, we don't have, I, unfortunately I don't have an extra room where I could put all my themed party wares, you know? So how do we get creative with not a lot of money? Yeah. Just getting creative, yeah. I guess, within constraints, right? Freedom. Yeah. Of within, yeah. Again, a great question. Um, one of my other, you know, go-tos is never, never roast the piggy bank. But speaking to your point about New York and small spaces, how to transform a space, you know, one of, I think, the biggest tips that people, it's an inexpensive thing and it's well worth the investment, is go to your local hardware store or your bodega and buy yourself a dimmer. Buy yourself a dimmer for your lights. So even if it's, you know, a practical lamp, that's like a table lamp that's sitting on a table, um, turn off your overheads if you don't have the money to put in a dimmer switch and plug that lamp into a dimmer because just adjusting the lights so that the lights are at that beautiful glowy space. And also don't listeners don't kill me. I absolutely hate led lights. So I'm, I'm, I think they're one of the, I mean, granted, I, they're wonderful because they're so energy saving, but for, you know, they still haven't really mastered a great incandescent glow through led. And, uh, to me, there's just nothing that is, you know, more magical than when you take an incandescent bulb and you dim it down about halfway. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you accent the room with a few bits of candlelight really, you don't need a whole lot more. Do you know what I mean? You mm-hmm. like a, a simple linen tablecloth and, you know, maybe some, some great flowers or maybe not. Um, and you know, great music. Like those are the things that I think are really the key, like the backbone of a great event, because you're then providing an atmosphere that's very cozy. It's romantic. It makes everyone look beautiful and you, it makes people want to stay and relax and that I think is like the, the most important thing when I'm doing an event or I'm having friends over is really making sure that the environment feels cozy. It feels warm. It feels very safe. And it feels like a space that they want to just hang out in for a long period of time. Yeah. I always say like, my goal is for people to come at like 7 PM and leave at 2 AM. Like I want <laughs> oh, them yeah. to be so comfortable that they're not like, well, I guess I should be getting home. Right. You want them to really feel like they can take off their shoes and relax. Absolutely. You're so good at adding like cheekiness, like Mm -hmm. a little bit of sexiness to an environment, which is not something that I think about enough. I got to say, because like I think about your events, I'm like, God, it's so, it, it just kind of elevates people as well. Right. Because it makes them really feel like, Ooh, it's a little bad. How Mm -hmm. do you do that? in your own space. Like if you're not throwing a huge event and you can get paper mache tits, like how can you do it? (laughs) Which I guess that's going to be my next big party. Like how can you kind of do it in your own space? Just make things a little sexier. Well, then I think it really comes into the storytelling of the evening of, you know, what are you, what is the evening? What are you doing? I did an event um, a while back and it was a really great example of it. Really, it's a little 
over the top, I think, of an example of this, but listeners can take what they want to from it. I was hired to do the launch of the store Kiki de Montparnasse in New York, and we did the dinner party for it. And the dinner party was really interesting because they wanted it to be very, very overtly sexual, but they didn't want it to be, you know, it wasn't like you were going to get flogged at the table. Like it was a very much a different um, experience that we did that evening. And we did things that were, um, it was really a lot about the textures of the evening and about forcing guests to do things that were unexpected. You know, again, it just depends on like, a lot of the things that I'm about to propose are very theatrical. So I think they're going to be out of the wheelhouse of people. But again, you know, take what you want from it. We did our first, our first course we did was um, a beet soup. Of course, the color was incredible because we had these big white porcelain bowls and then this blood red soup. And um, in the soup, we had these little crackers that we did that were floating on top of the soup. And it was a white cracker and it just said, eat me on it. And so there was these little kind of things that happened through the evening that were very subversive in the way that they were done, but very elegantly proposed, you know, towards the end for dessert, we actually did get, it got, it got a lot more theatrical where we um, had uh, the servers came around and they actually bound the, so your, your person that you were sitting next to, we bound their left hand to the person's right hand. Uh And so you had to actually participate while they were eating. Like there was this participation that happened between (laughs) us, which was really fun. One course we did where there was a, a main, there was a dish that was put on the table and there was the only one implement was put uh, for each person to work with. And so you had to kind of navigate, like re-navigate your food in a very different kind of playful way. Um, which again, like if you're an adventurous host, I really encourage some of these types of this type of thinking where you take and you do play with the idea of not giving your guests all of the tools that they typically would be used to eat with or um, give them the task of, you know, doing something like eating with their hands, which of course not a lot of people are game for. But I think that these types of things really force people to engage in a more sensual way with the meal. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to get quite as theatrical with props. You can definitely um, push a storyline further in the evening. And then if you want to just kind of go about it in a more traditional aspect, really look at the textures of the evening you know, like really look at, you know, like what are people sitting on? What is the linens on the table? Like these kind of basic things and color, 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 you know, just theming a dinner where the whole dinner is like monochromatic and color palette is so fun. It's such an interesting way of doing an evening. Um, One of the best like little cocktail parties, it was a dinner party that I did at my apartment in New York um, is I did a dinner that was called the black feast um, and it was all black. Everything was black on black on black. And oh, it was yeah. so much fun. And ne- technically, they some of the things weren't black black, but like I got purple cauliflower, you know, obviously eggplant, purple carrots, like everything was the darkest color I could find um, and just did the whole evening in that capacity. And the way that it looked from the black candles to the black flowers to the black tablecloth, you know, I mean, like all of it was so striking and it it was such a memorable evening for everyone. And we were only, I think a party of six people, 
And um, people to this day still talk about like wow. what a memorable evening was it and the black cocktails and like everything was just this very mysterious and elevated experience. Yeah. So beautiful. That sounds gorgeous. Did you have the guests wear black too? Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, it's also just allowing a little bit of theatricality, right? Yeah. It's saying like, yes, you're coming over for dinner and it's my house, but also can't we just engage on a different level a little bit? Like, can't we just leave our regular lives at the door and <laughs> embrace a little bit more of something? It's not because it is, it's a reverence, it's theatricality, it's subversiveness. It's all of those things. We've talked a lot, you know, in this conversation about, I would say very theatrical, you know, exhibitions of this idea, but it can be something as simple as as like a taco night, do you know what I mean? And just engaging with the evening in a little bit of a different way. I mean, it doesn't need to be complicated. So you could do a mezcal tasting and some tacos and like do a really fantastic playlist and do like do the table with like really intense, bright colors. And I mean, that that is just as is avant-garde and fun and out of the box as, you know, a dinner that's all black on black on black. So it doesn't, you know, it's just, I think, again, for hosts, it's just really thinking about it a little bit further and taking things maybe out of the traditional context. And, you know, again, I think one of the things that I loved so much on an event with Bet was, you know, we were, this is like, you know, high society uh, fundraiser event and we did TV dinners, you know, we did, we reinterpreted the TV dinner and like, it was people loved that. Like people absolutely loved that idea. And I think again, for like New Yorkers, how fun to like, you know, take and do like serve TV dinners, but I mean, get the TV dinner tray and then like do a really gorgeous dinner and right. serve it in a, in an aluminum trough and give it to your guests. You know right. what I mean? Like super well, fun. Like, that would be a fun COVID idea. You could do like, since, you know, we're not supposed to be traveling. If somehow you can get everyone to bubble up and throw like a tiny dinner party, you could do like, we're going, this is very theatrical. We're, you know, traveling to Paris or whatever, and you serve like, like airplane food, That's but right. it's elevated. And yeah. Yeah. That's, That's a great idea. idea. But I mean, it's really basically the same thing exactly. as the TV dinner, but, <laughs> but it's an airplane. Yeah. Because it's COVID. We can't go. Yeah. Well, we should let you go soon. But before we do, how are you bringing theatricality to people, theatricality, atmosphere, all of these things in the middle of COVID? when we're all looking at our screens, because I know you're, you've been working on Halloween, like, and I know you've done wonderful things. So will you just talk a little bit about that? Cause I'm lost. I feel <laughs> sure. like you have no. no desire to be social anymore. It's depressing. It is depressing. Um, you know, this year, you know, we were very fortunate again this year, I think, you know, with the theme being Hocus Pocus is just a miracle. I loved the film, but I didn't really understand that, millennials were obsessed with the film. Like, I didn't realize that there was like, I didn't know that it had this life that was beyond what I knew of the film. Um, So the response to it has been, you know, pretty overwhelming just from that standpoint. But the property itself and and the materials that we had to work with were so lush and interesting that, you know, telling the backstory of, you know, Winifred, Sarah, and Kathy, like that that whole concept (laughs) is so fun. Uh, But how we're bringing it forwards and, and really giving people that virtual experience is going to be, we developed a lot of interesting products. So we've created these kind of engaging gift. I, 
don't know if I want to call them gift boxes, but these engaging boxes that you can get um, that are themed. And so they're these kind of cheese boards and like assembled cheese boards. And we did a, we did like a kid's charcuterie experience um, where it's these like really fantastical candies that you get and then you put it together and you get to watch the film and there's a cocktail making kit that we're doing. So it's a lot about, you know, obviously we're, we're all trying to get very creative within the confines of our new pandemic or our new reality. And what we've been wanting to do is I think, there's so many people that are involved with Huluween that are so immensely talented. And this has been a really interesting time to kind of shine the spotlight on these different people and then giving them these kind of mini master classes where they can engage with NYRP, they can engage with the charity, and then you can kind of a la carte pick if you want to do like a cheese board experience or if you want to do a wine tasting experience or if you want to do something with your kids. And so I think that that's, you know, the way that we're bringing the theatricality to people's houses. Um, I believe that this year, you know, the holidays, Halloween, you know, Hanukkah, Christmas, like, I think people more than ever are going to really be looking at the holidays and they're going to really latch on to it because we need escapism more than ever right now. Um, and I think with Halloween, this is frustrating because I think we all want to get out of our comfort zones. We all want to do something fun and playful. And, and so I'm hoping that through the products and the projects and what we've done we've done so far with nyrp and hocus pocus that um it will give people that ability to um have some fun and do it safe yeah love that so much same and also i think there's been so much emphasis on you know zooming and and just being in the same place visually but Mm -hmm. it's great to hear that you know you are encouraging people the same way that we are to why don't you cook the same recipe as, as someone else on the other side of, of the camera. So that way you can have that shared experience. Why don't you burn the same candle? Why don't you put together this kit? It's just another way of connecting that is not only, oh my God, I'm staring at this person on the screen, must connect. It's it's a nice way to share things with the other senses. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We just have a final question. We've been um, told by some people that we needed to have one question that we ask everyone to kind of put the end stamp on all of our fabulous interviews. So if you were on a desert island and you could only have one bag of chips, what kind of chips would they be? Oh <laughs> my real, God. real intellectual conundrum. That's a really good one. Um, so there's an, there's a brand of chips that's quite famous in England that I'm totally obsessed with. Mm. And they make a salt, they make a salt and vinegar chip that I live and die by. <gasps> Okay. Well, that's the answer. We that, will... that famous English salt and vinegar chip. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like one of my favorite evenings ever is uh, a great bottle of red wine and a, and a bag of these salt and vinegar chips. Oh, I it's love about that. about as trashy as you can get. Well, it's kind of high low. I love that. Yes. It's the best. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Love him. Love him. <laughs> so impressed. Just so impressed. And it really makes me look at my space and my apartment and be like, I just want to do things better. Right. It's just like, I want to just slightly elevate my life. I kind of just want to take myself more seriously, but he is, he brings the sex, but he also does bring the cheekiness. He's not without humor. He's just, he's really found a perfect niche. Yeah. He's fantastic. God, we're so lucky that we got to have him on. Douglas, thank you so much. So we will see you guys next week. Remember, follow us on Instagram, 
text 22828. Having a night, subscribe to our newsletter, buy a hat or a coaster if you're so inclined. I'm going to go take a nap in my coffin and um, we'll talk to you guys soon. Hey, we'll see you next week for more more spookiness. There's more Halloween to come. Ciao. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.